This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, Now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Boone. Today on the program, I'm joined by an old teammate. Played the big leagues for 13 years. Been an MLB Network analyst and currently announces game for the Texas Rangers and the Seattle Mariners. This is going to be a lot of fun. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to <laughs> Valley Val. Thanks for coming on the program. Hey, it's my pleasure, my man. Uh, enjoyed and have been looking forward to this for a while. Very cool. I'm flipping this. I'm flipping the script on you. I, Boone How about that? You're like you're so professional. Oh, I'm so professional. <laughs> uh, top five teammates of all time. Oh, man, you should have sent me these questions before I got on air. Oh, no. Uh, they could be random. Some of your favorites. Not, not, you not, in, not, not in this order. No, not in this order. I have a feeling who a couple of them are going to be. Uh, Jay Buhner. Okay. Ken Griffey Jr. There you go. Edgar Martinez. Yes. Will Clark. Wow. Uh... Rusty Greer. I could I could keep going. I, I I've wow. been really fortunate to play with some really great guys, some great players, obviously, some Hall of Famers, but uh, just some great people. Brett Boone. I still you can't put me I on can't. because we only well, played no. together for a, for a but year. You, yeah, but you made me laugh more than any of them. All of them combined. <laughs> I'll tell you, I didn't know because uh, you mentioned Will 
and I had Will on, and Val, when I came up, well, we'll we'll get into that, but you know how I was, it kind of. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I, I go to this uh, bar in spring training. I think it was Dan Marley's bar back in the day. That was oh, a yeah. big bar in Phoenix. The three point shooter Dan Marley. Yeah, oh yeah. And I went into this bar one night. I'm sitting next to Robbie Thompson, and Robbie's very cool and he knows i'm a young kid i'm just trying to make the team i'm a second baseman he's a second baseman so i'm looking at robbie you know he's been there for a while and here comes the thrill he walks in <laughs> and he's glaring, he's glaring at me like like he's like he's gonna take me outside we're gonna fight and i'm looking at robbie and i'm going what's his problem and he's like booney he just don't like young players man because <laughs> we had played, and so you know this is this is nineteen ninety uh, ninety one. Yeah, ninety one. Yeah. I what my first year when I was a non roster invitee, and and Will. Uh, I mean, he's just glare. I had him on the show. It was great. He was he was so funny. I mean, this is you know thirty years later, but uh, I do remember that. But great teammate. That's that's good to hear. Great player. Yeah, he was. He was. I mean, his nickname was the Sheriff, right? So we're down here with the Texas Rangers, and uh, we'll just kind of handle the locker room, you know, like the, the kind of the way I always felt like it should be, like the veteran guy who's got the respect of the clubhouse. He can call out anybody. It's very similar, and, and I'm not saying it because you're on this. I'm on your podcast, but you did the same thing when you became a veteran in Seattle. I mean, you kind of handled the clubhouse. If there was an issue with a young player, maybe who's not playing the game properly. Booney called him out. Will would do the same thing, you know, whether and he would call out sports writers, as did you. Uh, he'd call out teammates, coaches. No, nobody was off limits. Um, and Junior was like that, too, as he got further into his career. Yeah, it, and it is. It, it's it's amazing, the dynamic. And we're going to talk about it a little bit. Being a kid, being a veteran, uh, obviously, for those of you listening to the Boom podcast, I, I broke in in 1992. Dave Valley was the uh, – was the catcher on that Mariners team. He was a veteran player. And uh, I'm interested to hear because I think people want to hear. Not too many people had a front row seat uh, to to my naive butt when I was coming into the big leagues. I was a non-roster invitee. One, one of uh, Val's buddies was Harold Reynolds, who at the time uh, we've had Harold on the program, and, and Harold's great. But Back then, there was a little tenseness because Harold Reynolds was a second baseman in, in Seattle. Had won a couple Gold Gloves. Mm -hmm. uh, the city loved him, and it was just that time in his career, which we all have. I had it. Yeah. You, Val, you had it. Where it's a changing of the guard, and and your time is is here for a while, but somebody's always going to replace you. And I was that guy replacing Harold Reynolds. So I remember coming into that atmosphere, kind of like the young player. But at the same time, it's like, oh, they're replacing. He, he's the heir apparent to Harold. So it, it wasn't friction, but it was different. And it was a different time in baseball where you kind of had to earn your stripes as a young player. I mean, nowadays. It's oh, yeah. No, nothing was given to you back then. You had uh, to earn it. Right. You see it now. You've been doing games forever. Uh, so you're seeing how the game has transformed from the time you came into the big leagues in the 80s to now what that 2023 look uh, rookie in Major League Baseball looks like, a little different. But all right, set this, I'm going to set the stage. Booney coming in, 22 years old. 
<laughs> and I'll tell you about you talking about me later, and and I did take on that leadership role, and there is a there is a way to behave. I, I I wasn't a guy that was hard on young players. I would look at young players and just shake my head like, I remember I was that guy. I did it. Yeah. And actually, some of the guys that were naive and really kind of had a chip on their shoulder and and uh, maybe had a little cockiness to them, or not arrogance, but a, a real confidence. I laughed at him and I said, you're going to be humbled in this game, but I like that confidence because you'll learn yeah. from it. And if it's true, you know, anybody. And you, and you, and Booney, you, you were full of that. So when, when I, when I described to people like, Hey, what was Brett Boone? Like I said, he was this confident guy. He came off some to a lot of people as cocky, but it was a, it was a confidence and it was a confidence and a cockiness <laughs> that didn't rub you the wrong way. And that's very unique. Right, you have a lot of young kids who come up cocky, thinking, "I got this down. Nobody can tell me anything." The one thing about you that always made me laugh was that you just had this great belief in yourself, but you had a professionalism that was unequaled by any young player. And I think a lot of that had to do because of your dad growing up in the game, having the respect for the game. But you always wanted to play the game the right way. You play it with flair. Uh, I think of Bo Bichette. I actually just used that as an example the other day, watching Bo Bichette. I said, Bo Bichette's swing reminds me of a young Brett Boone. Just he has he has flair. He has a, a confidence when he steps in the box. But that was the thing that I always respected and admired about you. Even when you were a young punk who got in the van as we drove a two-hour drive down to Tucson, and I was just going, who is this kid? <laughs> You had a little tape around your wrist. I don't know if you remember that. But I, I think that was my first time I, I spent two hours with you because we were, we were riding in vans down to Tucson. Yeah. Uh, I, I did, though, and I remember those times because I was telling the story the other day. When I first came up, uh, you know, my debut was in, in 92 in Baltimore. And I remember getting my first base hit. My first at bat, Buner, you know, a Buner scored. So I had a ribby base hit my first bat. And I remember rounded first. And you could probably attend because this is how I believed back then. Uh, believe me, between then and now, I've had more humble pie than you could throw at anybody. But that's what we, Val, I think that's what we have to go through and learn and mature and yes. get our butt kicked, man. Hey, learn if, how to if, get if off the play, ground. Yeah, if you're going to play this game for 10 or more years, I played 20 total, right? So seven in the minors. 13 in the big leagues. If you play the game of baseball for 10 years, you will have experienced every kind of humility known to man. Uh, there's going to be such mountaintop experiences with one swing of the bat at the right time. And there's going to be a lot of deep, deep valley experiences where you're going, oh my God, am I ever going to get another hit? Yeah. Like, will I ever get a hit? Um so, so being a part of this game, I, I mean, it does. It, it makes you grow in ways that you never even imagined you needed to grow. And this this probably won't come as a surprise to you at a 22-year-old me. I rounded first base, and I'll remember Randy Milligan was playing first. And you know how they do when you get your first hit, they throw the ball in. And I've told this story before, but I laugh now. And he turned <laughs> to me, and he said uh, – Booney, he said, congratulations. He said, you got 2,999 to go. <laughs> and I turned to him because I didn't know Randy Milligan. And I said, thank you, sir. 
and I'll, I swear to you, this is true. In my mind, I'm thinking, who's this guy thinking I'm only going to get 3,000? <laughs> but that's, that, that's how I was back then. And that I really was, believed that's it. right. And six weeks, and I still, I followed up with this. Six weeks later, I'm sitting in my locker, having a beer, looking at Mike Blowers going, blow. The big leagues is really hard, and he just kind of looked at me like, no shit. <laughs> no, I, I think every, everyone who gets to the big leagues, right, you, you don't get there unless you have this amazing belief in your own ability that you can be there. I've always believed that it took any young player, most young players, you bar a couple of them, once they got to the big leagues, they didn't really believe that they belonged there for maybe a year or two where they go, finally they go, okay, I should be here. I'm a big leaguer. Because there's always that bit of self-doubt going, man, am I good enough? You know, because you have those yeah. ups and downs and you go and there, there's always that little bit of doubt. But if you don't believe in your talent, there's no way that you stay around. You'll eventually just melt and you'll fade away into the darkness like so many players have in the past. But uh, you got to start off with that that inner inner cockiness, whether it comes out verbally uh, or physically with the way you, you, you kind of handle yourself, it's got to be in there. If it's not in there, you got no chance to be a success in the game of baseball. And, and it's, you know, I like your point that we all, it, it, it takes time for you to get that, you know, you're kind of looking behind you. Like I'm kind of, I'm kind of established myself, but I am established yet. I, right. I had a moment of clarity for me. It took a while. I came up in 92, 93. I was on the shuttle first half of the season with our new skipper, Lou Pinella. Oh, he loved and, you. <laughs> how about that? You know, how how far did that come full circle? We went from fighting to he's one of my favorite men I've ever been around, you know, in my second tenure with Seattle. But uh, I remember it came to a head and, and about I, I was on the shuttle up, down, up, down, up, down. Finally, at, around the all-star break, uh, I was there to stay and I had a pretty good second half. And, and I remember the moment for me where I'd finally like, OK. You're going to be here for a while. We were in Minnesota, and it was a blowout game. I forgot if we were winning and they were winning. But Lou took Junior, Jay Buner, and myself out of the game. Like, hey, go get your shower. And I remember it was the greatest shower I ever took. Because at that time, (laughs) well, Junior's Junior, and Bone was, you know, a grinder. Uh, he played every big, day, every game. Right, but it, right, a big power hitter established in Seattle. And for the first time, I wasn't, I wasn't like mopping up or, or for the first, it was like Lou was taking care of me. And I remember taking that shower like, I've arrived. I've yeah. arrived. He took me out of the yeah. game and took care of me. And, and it's little goofy things like that. They're really cool. And they mean a lot when you're a young player to kind of have that, I don't know, that, that, confirmation especially yeah the respect yeah it's it's kind of a respect and from to get that from lou you know because i I remember how you you two guys were you were like oil and water Mm -hmm. you know he's telling you to choke up hit the ball the other way and you were just like swinging that that shillelagh uh but then you started to listen to him i mean you started to apply some things and started to drive the ball to right center field uh which Again, you earned that from him. He didn't give it to you. Lou, Lou made you earn it. 
uh, whether you were a young pitcher or a young player, you had to do things the way he wanted you to. And th then you earned that respect to be able to say, hey, take a few innings off, kid. I need you for tomorrow. So for, for me, Booney, the, the doubt always came like uh, I'd come to spring training. And I, I, I was really fortunate. I was uh, in big league camp when I was 18 years old. Imagine that, right? And I remember playing against the California Angels. I remember playing against your dad because he was a catcher. I was a catcher. And having this, like, almost this awe factor, like Reggie Jackson. Like, I grew up in New York City. I watched Reggie hit all the home runs. I hit saw him hit the three home runs in the World Series game. And then now I am catching, and Reggie Jackson steps into the box. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, is this, like, is this a dream? Is this really real? So they, for me, those were like, do I belong here? Like, this is Reggie. Like, Reggie in pinstripes. Like, do I belong in it? It takes, it does take a while for those type of moments that you experience to say, no, I'm a big leaguer. You know, I, I can carry myself, my, keep my head high uh, through the ups and downs. I'm a big leaguer. I, I know how to get through this. And it takes time to be able to learn how to get through those really difficult times that this game can put you in. I had, uh, I had guys like yourself, uh, Harold. I had Jay Buhner, uh, was a big influence on me when I was first coming up junior. Um, I think of, I, I think of guys that came along in 93, Chris Bozio, who kind of was giving me that tough love, but you know, he loved me to death, but man, he was yes. going to, it was going to be a tough love. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't, Hey Booney, you do what you want. It's you earn it. And then, Hey, come with me. I'll take you to dinner. I'll take care of you. Bone, same way. Bone yeah. Beat the crap out of me, but at the end of the day, he goes, "Hey, here, here's some keys, kid. You can stay at my my place." Uh, yes. And and I appreciated that, and I knew that. Who were the guys for you when you were coming up? Who were guys that kind of took took Val under their wing? You know, it's interesting because I got to the big leagues in 1984. I was 23, and the Mariners weren't really filled with a lot of veteran guys. Uh, if they if they were some, uh, they weren't like real stars of the game maybe al cowens i think al ac had maybe an all-star game under his belt but it was myself it was alvin davis mark langston jimmy presley we were all young like all like literally leaning on each other like oh my gosh how do we figure this out and and alvin alvin was the most statesman-like player of the game so you called me earlier in the show volcano so oh, we'll I had a, we'll get to that. I, I, I had the ability to erupt, and that's what that's what Brett's talking about to all the folks who are listening. Oh, it's the best. And then, and, the best. Then, and then here's Alvin Davis, who literally four for four, zero for four with four punch outs. You would not know what the outcome was. He'd just walk in, take his helmet off, put it in the rack, put his bat away, take his batting gloves off, and then go sit down. Like after striking out three or four times in a row, I'm like, who is this guy? How do you do that? I mean, so for me, it was actually leaning on some of the younger, younger guys, but a guy like AD who really was an incredible example of a professional. Uh, he's still in the game, which the game is better off for it uh, with the Mariners in the minor leagues as a, as a hitting instructor. Uh, but it was guys like that, you know, um, personal friends who, I mean, Harold's, Harold and I were roommates, AD and I were roommates. Uh, so all through those early years when you had to have a roommate, it was like literally, hey man, don't, don't leave me alone around here. So we were all trying to figure it out together. 
we all got married, we all became fathers. So we were all going through these same similar life things, which I think draws you even closer together, not just as teammates, but as tr- truly lifelong friends. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And you're right, uh, Alvin. It's, I mean, just the consummate. He's just a gentleman, first and foremost. Amazing. But he's yeah. those guys that, that guys like me and you, we're wired differently. And I'll tell you, that was one. That was some solace. And uh, we mentioned the volcano. It's great because it's it's exactly right. I still t- to call David to this day when I see him. I'll either call him David or the volcano. But I'll tell you, as a young player, because we were a lot alike, we were both as intense as we could be. And then when we got through the moment, it was like, all right, what, what am I doing? Let's let's get back to it. And yeah. as I yeah. as I went on my career, uh, you know, I learned to temper that a little bit. But inside, I was the same. It's like I wanted to get a hit so bad every at bat. And, you know, uh, it, it wasn't um, I don't know. It's something you kind of you kind of live and you learn. But it, but yeah. it was nice for me as a young player having that personality. I'm going, well, Val's, he's been the catcher here for a while, and he's doing the same same stuff, so I, I, can throw my, I can throw my equipment. I didn't break the big mirror, though. I did not break the big mirror. Well, that was just one of the few things I broke. I mean, I used yeah. to get, like, a monthly bill from the kingdom. Hey, yeah. the, uh, the sewer pipe broke. Oh, that wow. was must have been Val. Yeah. Oh, the mirror broke. Oh, must have been Val. <laughs> That is awesome. Oh, God. That is awesome. But you know what? For, for me, Booney, it was playing kind of from my from my background. You know, I grew up in New York City, eight kids in the family, single mom. I was, always felt like I was just playing for survival. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish, I truly wish, because I didn't really get it until maybe my last three years in the big leagues. I wish I could have really enjoyed the journey a little bit more. But I was always in, like, survival mode. Um, and I think that's what brought out some of those eruptions uh, that, that you saw. Because I was fighting for my life. You know, you know that's, you, that's all I knew. You talk about survival mode. And there's a lot of talk of that. You know, when people ask you, what, what would one thing, you could go back through your career, what would you have, what would you have done differently? And, you know, of course, we do a lot of things differently. But mm-hmm. uh, I always thought about that. Like, well, maybe I'd, 
when I went to Wrigley Field, I take time to just kind of look around and appreciate what I had. When I went to Fenway, I think Gramps played here. You know, let me t- check out the nooks and cranny. I, I never went behind the wall. Uh, Monument Park in, in New York. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I, did a, I did a show with uh, Paul Canerco. And he said, Booney, that all sounds great. He said, but, and, and to your point, we're grinding so hard. Yeah, if, if you had a perfect life in a perfect world, you would do all these things. I would have gone to uh, Alcatraz, which I planned on going to every time I went for San Francisco my whole life, and still to this day have not gone. In a perfect world, I would have checked that off the box, you know. I would have gone but you would, you, you would have needed to plan for it like months ahead because the day you decide, oh, I'm going to go to Alcatraz today, it was sold out. It was so was no... I, I can't tell you how many times I booked a trip and canceled a trip. I can't tell you how many times. But Canerco told me, he said, Booney, yeah, it sounds good in theory. He said, but this game is so hard and we're grinding so much that I think that would lose our edge if we just said, oh, today I'm going to go around and I'm going to do this and that. He goes, I got to worry yeah. about who's pitching today, who's pitching tomorrow. My swing stinks. I got to fix my swing. I got to get there. Early. So there is. Yes. It, it sounds great. And, and I think. Most of us, especially when we get to, to be veteran players, we do have a, a true appreciation for this game and, and wearing a big league uniform for a living. But to sit there and just, uh, you know, just fantasize, oh, this is good. No, we got stuff to do. We yeah. got to earn a living. Yeah. We're, we're here it, to get it, fired. It's the buddy, the, the time that I started really appreciating being in the big leagues, I was with the Texas Rangers kind of towards the end of my career. I'm a backup player now, so I'm not. Worried about the day-to-day grind, right? I, I didn't have to worry about facing that pitcher on that particular night. With Pud Rodriguez, I was like a backup NFL quarterback. I played like every third Sunday, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Johnny Johnny Oates would go, hey, Val, uh, I'm thinking about playing you tomorrow. Like he'd tell me this Saturday night because it was a day game on Sunday. And I'd come in and Pudge is in the lineup. C- couldn't blame him, though, at that point. But it took me – not being an everyday player to really be able to sit back right out in the bullpen and really enjoy the fact that I'm a, I'm a major league baseball player. Um, Yes. In the twilight of my career, but really being able to look back and go, how blessed was I to be able to play this game for the last 20 years of my life professionally get paid for it. Uh, I had one story. We were playing the tech. We're playing the, uh, I was with Texas. We're playing the Seattle Mariners. So in the old ballpark here in Texas, there used to be a uh, the grounds crew dugout, and then you'd have to walk past the grounds crew dugout to get to the to the bullpen, which was a little bit more elevated out in right center field. I don't know if you remember that. And my son Philip was 11 and 12 years old when I was a Texas Ranger, so I had a deal with him. I said, every fifth inning, I will meet you in the grounds crew bullpen. They had a little you know their little dugout, and bring two popsicles, and I would. I would go out to the bullpen every fifth inning just in case there were two guys getting needing to get warmed up. I'd run out fifth inning. Me and my boy, Philip would sit down and literally eat a popsicle, watch an inning of baseball. And then I'd send them back to the locker room and I'd, I'd go up to the bullpen. So one day the Mariners are in town. I'm out there in the fifth inning eating a popsicle and Jay turns around and goes, what the hell? And he looks over at Junior goes, Junior, get over here. Look at this crap. He's like, you can pay to do this? I'm like, it's about time I got the chance to do this. And me and Philip, and meanwhile, the game is being halted 
they were starting to start the inning and junior and i'm like get out of here man they're gonna find out what i'm doing every night like go back to your position but it was those moments man that i know could never be replicated anymore you know the the fact that he was coming out, my son was coming out for batting practice every day. He's out in the outfield with Kirby Puckett and Cal Ripken, and he's hanging out with them. I mean, those experiences of being a Major League Baseball player, and I know you had some, because I remember you in spring training, you and, and your brothers running around in Palm Springs yeah. with little Boone on your back yeah. going, how cool is that? You know, yeah. Bob Boone's sons are out here in their little uniforms. I'm like... And I finally had a chance to experience something very similar to that. And, uh, you know, again, just being able to pause and go, man, I'm blessed. You know, how, how could I possibly complain about most anything going on in this world? You're right. You're right. And, and you know, a lot of us, though, it doesn't hit us till you're 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 gone and you're done. And but you do. You reflect back and it is special. And, and I I try to and I try not to be the old guy, but young players. Uh, that's what you say. Hey, appreciate what you got. Doesn't mean lose yeah. your edge, lose your, lose what you do on a daily basis, but really appreciate this. Cause man, you think when we're, when we're, when we're playing and we're in our, you know, in our heyday and in our prime, you think this will never end. This is what I do. Yeah. Especially for me, it was a hard, it was a hard lesson when I, when I was finally done with the game. Cause you'd mentioned those Palm Springs days. Since I was four years old, I've been putting on my uni going to the ballpark. You know, I, I miss playing. You did. I miss playing with were. right. My dad's in the big leagues when I was in AAA, and I'm going. This is all I've ever known. Now, of course, now you know. Now this childhood's over. Now I'm going to go play in the big leagues for well forever. Yeah, and and then one day it ends, and you go. Now what do I do? What do I do? So that, that, this is all I know. That that's an interesting perspective because. I was fortunate enough to play with you and Junior. So both of you guys grew, literally grew up in the big leagues, in a big league clubhouse. And the one thing I noticed that was very similar about both of you was the fact that you just always were comfortable. Like, I kind of like, this is my environment. Like, I'm, I'm in a big league clubhouse. I always just, I use the example for Junior. He grew up with Joe Morgan. And who's Harold Reynolds? He grew up with Johnny Bench. Who, who the hell is Dave Valley, right? So he was unimpressed with anybody. Uh, and I think you had that same thing. It was like, my, I know Reggie. I, I, my, da my dad's been a big leaguer for 20 years. You know, he's caught 2,000 baseball games. So th that, that edge, and I really do feel like it was an edge because you just always felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, and I saw it in both of you guys, and it was just so very similar when you were both really young. Because Junior got there when he was 19, which is insane. insane. You know, I think back of where I was when I was 19. I was, yeah, there's no chance. No chance I, of being in the big leagues and trying to figure it all out. Junior, he played a role. My, that was my first kind of wake-up call when I got to the big leagues. And I realized I talked about, you know, sitting with Blow having a beer saying it's really hard. And at the same time, I'm looking at Kenny going, that guy's the same age as me. <laughs> He's hit 30 home runs in the big leagues already. I, I don't know if I'm coming or going. I'm number 87 or whatever number they gave me. And that was kind of a wake-up call. Of, well, I thought I was pretty good, and I whipped through the minor leagues pretty fast. Well, I'm looking at – well, 
and it's not really fair. I mean, Junior's the, a once-in-a-lifetime guy that you're not going to see very often. But that was my comparison because we're on the same team. And it's almost like it was the first time, Val, where some one of my peers that were the same age as me was, like, giving me advice. Because it seemed like because of my upbringing, I was always the, the elder statesman. But when it came to Kenny, he was the elder statesman with me. And I remember that in those early goings with Kenny, I, I would – I'd be struggling. And, and you know how Kenny was. He was very, you know, his public demeanor was cooler than school. But totally you, different. Yeah. But when you got him one on one, I mean, we had some talks in the kingdom under the Raptors uh, when no one was looking where Kenny kind of put his hand on my shoulder and say, Booney, listen, this is going to be tough. This isn't easy. And, and it was almost like a father figure at the same age. But and I told him I, right. I, I, I appreciated that years later. I really did appreciate those times where he was just a guy that for whatever reason was born a little different than the rest of us and, and got to the big leagues when when the rest of us were were freshmen. I was a freshman in college or a sophomore in college. <laughs> you know, you were in, in low A ball somewhere. I was it in A so, ball somewhere. Just so happens, Kenny's, Kenny's hitting homers in the home run derby, and the rest of us are, are <laughs> like, you know, we're eating peanut butter and jelly out of a – speaking of home run derbies, I can't let you go. We got to go there. This is one of the greatest. <laughs> this is one of the greatest. And I still – Val, he doesn't get any slack for it because it wasn't his fault. <laughs> 2000 I, I was but you was, called me out on national tv i did i did <laughs> <laughs> all right 2001 i get to be in my first home run derby and i'll admit it right here i'm not the best uh, bp home run guy there's a lot of guys that are better but it's an honor to be invited and i said who wouldn't take this opportunity it's at safeco field now t-mobile park uh you know, I hit three or four. I tie Sammy Sosa. I don't move on. I save face, though. I hit a couple in the upper deck. I'm like, that's all the crowd wanted to see. That's all we want to do. And what people, some they people just don't wanted realize, to see the boon leave the yard. That's all. Right, right. But as players, <laughs> what is a lot of times, what do we think? It's not we have to win it. It's don't embarrass yourself. That's yes. the thing. So 2003 comes along. <laughs> oh, gosh. David Valley is at the All-Star game. It's in Chicago. And my my go-to guy was John McLaren. Always has been, but I was a late entry into the 2003 Home Run Derby. I call Mac, you know, the day before. Okay, pause, Mac, Mac can't pause. make it. Go, go ahead. Pause. Mac can't make it and you ask me, you say, "Hey Val, yep, can you come to Chicago and be my 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 BP pitcher?" And I was like, yeah, that'd be a blast. So me and Vicky head to Chicago. Go ahead, pick it back up. <laughs> now, I'm going on a reputation. I'm hearing from everybody. Hey, Val really throws good BP, and I know Giambi likes you. Oh yeah, and, and uh, I've never really hit off Val. So we get out for our warmups, and Val's throwing throwing to me, and the ball's cutting a little bit. I'm hitting doubles down the left field line and I'm, I'm starting to panic. I'm like me and Val aren't seeing eye to eye on this. So I'm, <laughs> I'm getting ready. We have a big preliminary thing where each row is going to deliver my bat to me. It's going to be a big show and I'm going to light the world on fire and Val's throwing strikes, but I'm just not, I'm just, I can't get on the same page with him and I'm chop. I'm rolling over balls, rolling over balls. Next thing you know, the ultimate swing and a miss. 
I swing and missed the pitch. I had to live that down. I went zero homers <laughs> and a swing and a miss. And I heard about it the entire second half of the 2003 season. And I really didn't have any. The only thing is when my teammates would rag on me, what did I say to them? Try getting an invite before you have an opinion. Try try getting even <laughs> invited to be in the home run derby. But it is is one of the funniest things, and we can laugh about it now. And it, it wasn't like so, it wasn't like so I went out let, there let and Val was, me... Val was nervous throwing balls. He was throwing strikes. I couldn't square it up. All right, go. So I get to Chicago, right? I get to the hotel, the wet, we're staying, all staying at the Western Hotel, and I see G, I, Giambi, Jason. Oh, he's, he's like, Val, your... you're here? He goes, can you throw to me tomorrow? And I was like, yeah, sure. I can throw to you and Booney. No problem. I can handle two guys. Get to the ballpark the next day. Garrett Anderson. Hey, Val, can you throw to me too? Like three guys. Yeah, I could probably do three guys. Uh, Jimmy Edmonds. Val, can you throw to me too? I was like, sure. Why not? I'll throw to another guy. And then I threw another right-handed hitter. Might have been Gary Sheffield. Was Sheffield in that? Anyway, so I threw. I ended up throwing to five guys beside you. So five total. Guess who won the batting? Well, so let's go back to Boone. So I'm throwing to you, and oh. you're ripping top spin line drives in the left field. And then you Doubles. ultimately you do, do the swing and miss. <laughs> and that's when the whole world saw you stop, you walked out, and you started cussing me out and pointing at me. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm throwing the same to you as I'm throwing to all these other guys. <laughs> oh, but now, you did go in and get some some a little courage, though, in between it, uh, swings, didn't you? I Look think I did. Little I think pause I, and, there, there yeah. might have yeah, might have been a beer, <laughs> might have been a beer mixed in. And by the way, for the record, <laughs> I, I would at this stage of uh, in my career and our relationship, uh, I loved Dave Valley. So I would never truly cuss at him. I think I was so. It was such an awkward <laughs> time. I didn't know what to do. I didn't. Oh know my what gosh! To do. I know. I'm like, like what just happened? Like awkward. I think, I think every we camera, all looked around like. Right. <laughs> And then who who, who ended up happen? winning that? Who ended up winning that? I know Giambi put on a show. One of my guys. Yeah. Well, you Garrett, got five. Garrett Anderson. You get you Garrett had five Anderson. guys. One of them's got to win. And so Booney, that that was here's the craziest part of that. So I started throwing to you at six thirty because you wanted to get kind of get ready, right? Right. So then all of a sudden the other guys. So I throw for twenty minutes in down in the tunnel. The contest started at seven. It ended with Garrett Anderson winning it at 10 o'clock. So I kind of, I woke up the next morning, got up out of bed, trying to go get my first cup of coffee. And my left cheek, my left ass muscle was so sore. I'm like, what did I do? And I was like, I probably threw 1,200 pitches that night between all of it and stretched out over a three and a half period window. Uh, and by the way, my guy, as bad as I was throwing that night, my guy ended up winning it, Garrett Anderson. I'm still waiting for my prize from him or a gift. Like, I'm at a $100 restaurant. Garrett, where are you, man? You know, he, he walks away with the car and everything else. And I'm like, I got nothing, G. Come on. I You know, I don't even remember who won because by that time, I was in the witness protection program. I, I was somewhere hiding in a bunker. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. <laughs> I'm telling you, Val, and it's, it's 03. I'm having a great a huge year everywhere I went the second half. Nice home no, run you had derby, a monster boot. I'm like, not a good year. You I had said, a monster I said, 
I said, look at the numbers on the board. Quit making fun of me about the home run derby. It's an exhibition. <laughs> it's entertainment. It doesn't count. Oh, <laughs> but I had beautiful. to hear about it. And deservingly so. Deservingly you you so. need to pull that up and show that on this podcast if you can do that. Because that, that is just an all-time classic. All it, time. It, really, it really is. It really is. Changing subjects. The life of a catcher. Out of 162 games, how many days do you feel good? Uh, this is a pretty easy answer. Like I, I always tell people when they're like, Hey, how do you, how you feeling? I'm like, like, do you feel a hundred percent? Or I'm like, no, like never. <laughs> like maybe day one of spring training as a catcher, I feel a hundred percent where I've been lifting all, you know, all winter I'm doing my squats and you know, I'm as big and as strong as I'm going to be the entire year. Cause you can never maintain it throughout the course of the year. At least I couldn't. So yeah, once, once you start catching three or four pitchers every single day in spring training you're never 100 percent. so you just deal with the pain the stiffness the soreness as i got older like the arthritis so you you know you're taking anti-inflammatories just to be able to get out on the field every day i took uh was in in indicin uh and if, if i didn't take indicin after the game before i went to bed i woke up the next morning i i knew it instantly that I, I forgot to take it the night before because that was just kind of part of my routine where where you could get up in the morning and go catch. You know, I, I had one stretch when you were there, 91 through 93. I caught over, I think, over 130 games. I think my total, my highest was 136. And I thought I was going to die that year. So, like, when I look at what your dad did, it's like, it's mind-boggling to think that these guys are getting down there 140 to 155 times a year uh, is just absolutely an amazing feat uh, in my eyes. And I, I, you know, dad caught forever. And to be honest with you, I never really paid attention to that. I was always playing short and second base. And dad always said, you'll, you'd be a short. The last thing you do is catch Brett. So I really didn't pay attention <laughs> seriously, but I really didn't pay attention. Uh, recently, I paid a lot of attention to catching it and realized how important it is. And uh, just th that, that, that relationship you have with your pitching staff, uh, how important it is for your pitching staff to come to the ballpark, having a good relationship with you, wanting to throw with you. The most important guy in the mount or on the field every day is your starting pitcher. And I see these organizations, I see these catchers where they're short catching wise and the pitchers aren't, don't get on, don't get on board with the catcher, man, that's bad. And, and, and the reverse is when they've got a catcher, they love throwing to, they're skipping to the ballpark. And, uh, it's almost like a, a I've had a lot of really good shortstops in my career. I had a couple that will remain unnamed, not so good. But having that great relationship with my shortstop is unbelievable. It's like I can play my game. I don't have to worry about it. He's going to be there. We're on the same page. For you catching every day. As a second baseman, I took a lot of pride in my defense. I love playing defense. Uh, but if I've got to be honest, first and foremost, my priority was offense. And I've got to drive in runs for this team, for my team to win. Defense was secondary. I loved it. But it was secondary. For you, Dave Valley. What was your priority? You go to the ballpark every day. Everybody wants to get a hit, of course. Everybody wants sure, to contribute. Sure. That's that's the that's the the Hollywood. That's that's. But what was your priority on a daily basis? 
So I was 17 years old when I got drafted by Seattle. Uh, number two pick. I was number 32 overall. Cal Ripken was number 38, I believe. So came in as a highly touted, you know, high school catcher, 17, started my, my professional career. I, I remember my first summer, Mel Stoudemire was our pitching coach in Bellingham, Washington, who I knew because I was a Yankee fan growing up. Uh, I, I understood and knew the history of the New York Yankees. I was like, oh, my gosh, Mel Stoudemire. This guy was like the stud. And I remember Mel telling me that first summer, he, told, he said, David, if you want to get to the big leagues, catch and throw and work with your pitchers. Don't worry about your offense. Catch and throw and worry about your pitchers, and you'll get to the big leagues before you know it. Unfortunately, I was 17 and a cocky kid coming out of New York City, and I didn't listen to him because I ended up thinking about my offense because everybody, like you said, everybody wants to get a hit. Everyone yeah. wants to hit home runs. And I didn't really truly start focusing on it till about my third year in the minor leagues. And then coincidentally, when I started focusing on that, like my offense got better. Uh, it was kind of like this whole turning point for me as a minor leaguer. But I, I did understand once I started to kind of feel that, that impact, it was almost like a, a, a power of working with my pitchers. I, I explain it to people like this. As a catcher, you're really a servant. You're not really a leader. You're a leader by serving. So, And what I mean by that is if I'm going out there in between these guys' starts and I'm, I'm, warming, them, I'm warming them up when, on the days that they're not pitching, when they're working on stuff, and I'm there and I'm giving them some feedback and some encouragement. We all need that. We all need to hear good things, right? Come day game or game day for them, when I get behind the, the behind the plate, they know that I've just served them. They know that because people don't care what you know until they know that you care, right? So by me going out and going the extra mile with those guys, when I get behind the plate and I put a number down and they shake off and I put enough, that same number back down, they're like, okay, I, I know Val's, Val's into this. It's not like just something he's throwing down. Or if I go out there and I try to hear why do they want to throw this pitch and not that pitch, which is the one I want to throw nine times out of 10, I could talk them into throwing my pitch and throwing it with conviction. So that is something that is earned again. You know, we're going back to what we were talking about earlier as a younger player, nothing's given to you. You have to earn it. I have to earn the respect, especially as a younger catcher of an older pitcher of a veteran guy. So you handle those relationships a little bit differently, but ultimately that relationship, between you and that pitcher and every single pitcher, as you know, is a different animal. Some guys you need to kick in the butt. Some guys you need to scream at Randy Johnson. I used to have to scream at, you know, and then other days I have to stroke him. Cause if you yelled at him, he would kind of fall apart, you know, cause he was very early in his career. So from 89, I think he got traded to us in 89 to 93. By the time he got to 93, he was like, he was the dude. He was the best pitcher in baseball at that time. But 89 through 92, it was, what do I do with Randy today? Do I scream at him? Do I stroke him and tell him how good he is out there? Uh, it, it was just kind of a, a constant relationship, you know? Like, you know, whatever relationship you're in, your best friend, your wife, you got to work on it, man. Because if you stop working on it, then, then it kind of starts to break apart, especially in a situation where maybe the game's on the line that's when i need that guy 
to just believe in what I put down and you just focus on executing it. Fastball down and away, slider, bury it. I'm going to block it for you. All of those little things create that relationship, that very strong relationship where, which ends up allowing that pitcher to be his very best on any given night. You're right. And it comes down to that. It's managing people. It's almost like a CEO mentality. It's like, okay, I've got a problem here. I need to get through this inning. What, what's my tactic going to be? You're yes. taking in consideration. And what, what's my arsenal, right? Right. What's my Who, arsenal. Cause he may not, he may have one pitch of the four right? tonight. Like I got to get through this one. How, how right. am I going to deploy my weapons just to get, get that third out this particular inning? Now the skipper comes out. He makes a pitching change. I got a different personality coming in out of that bullpen. How's he been throwing the ball lately? What do I need? What do I need to get him in the right frame to get through this inning? Because that's the the goal. Get through this inning. Very yes. cool. And I and and I love it. And I really, you know, as I get old, I really look at it and I try to emphasize to people how important the the catching position is in that and and that that relationship that you have with with your pitchers. It's it's really a unique thing. And uh, that's why I see you, you mentioned those guys coming out of the bullpen. So one, one of the first questions I would try to ask my guy, because I didn't warm him up. Right. So I've, I've been focusing on my other guy. <clears throat> so he gets to the mound. Like my first question is, how you feeling? What do you got tonight? What do you what do you what yeah. do you like? Like what what when you threw, were throwing down there, when you threw a pitch and you're like, yeah, like that's I'm feeling that pitch. I needed right. to know that. Yeah. Okay. So now when I go back, I may not call it the way I I would have had I not gotten that information from him on that particular night. Because nobody, no pitcher has the same stuff on any given night, right? Anybody can pitch if you got your A game, but it's when you got your B game and your C game. How do you get through five innings? How do you manage that? Uh, and to me, that's what great pitchers are able to do. I don't have my best stuff, but I can figure out how to keep my team in this game get me through five, six innings, and then hand the ball off on a night when I just don't have it. I, I'm wondering if we had similar uh, defensively, obviously different positions, but I'll tell you, as I got older, and especially, and, and been around a little bit, I, I realized that I'm not going to hit every day, and man, hitting is so hard. And I would hmm. say, on those days where I'm not getting any hits, man, I'm going to take something away. And if I turned a big double play that helped us win a game, I could go into that clubhouse afterwards. Of course, I'm pissed I didn't get any hits. Same time thinking, you know what? I did what I had to do today, and I got it done. On if you contributed, it, I contributed, and I learned to take take that and and get a little joy out of it. Whereas in the past, it was like, no, for you especially as a catcher, did you ever have that game where he didn't have his A stuff, he didn't have his B stuff, he had his C stuff, and you knew you were an integral part of maneuvering him through that game and getting a win was that kind of sitting around after the game like wow i navigated the crap out of that and we got a win <laughs> out when we shouldn't have had one that's got to be some pretty pretty cool stuff it, it is and you, you know me i mean you play with me i was not a great hitter um although in today's game I, i'd have been probably viewed <laughs> a little bit differently um but there was no better feeling than to walk off the field with a W in, in your pocket. I mean, to me, that was like the ultimate because I knew if I was out there for nine innings and we came off the field with a win, I had a part in that. Um, and in each pitcher who threw that particular night, I had a part in their success as well. So it's not something that you would kind of call out 
or point at, but it was like that inner self gratification of I did my job tonight. You know, cool. I turned that double plate and I blocked the plate and I stopped yep. that run from scoring. His ERA is better because I blocked the plate and I, and I made the tag at home. His ERA is better because I threw that guy out of second base. I took a lot of pride in blocking balls. Um, I mean, I worked hard to be one of the best blockers in the game. I worked hard to be a good catch and throw guy. Uh, proud that I've had some years where I had, you know, 48 or 49 percent caught stealing, uh, which now again, nowadays, I think you'd be in trouble. Average is 20, 24 percent, 25 percent. So, um, yeah. So, so is there gratification on the defensive side of things? No question about it. No question about it. And ever since you know, you on get- the defense side. So again, you and I are both old school on the defensive side. I've always believed pitching and defense, right. Creates championships because pitching and defense can show up every night. It can be consistent. Mm-hmm. We're offense. You could run into a buzzsaw, right. And just, the opposing pitcher just shuts you down. But if you can play, if you can pitch and play defense every night, you're going to be in the majority of games with a chance to win maybe with one clutch hit. So being a part of that, that part that is so integral in a winning team, uh, always, and again, not early in my career, but I, but later on, I, I really recognized how much value I could get and satisfaction in my job that I could have by playing quality defense and being that, that quiet leader kind of putting the right fingers down at the right time. You've been on the, this side of the microphone for a lot of years now, watch a lot of games and, and uh, you know, you see guys that, that are your age, my age. And when they get out of the game, they tend to, Oh, these kids today, well, you do, you, you announce every <laughs> single night. So you can't have that attitude. And, and if you have an open mind, like I do, we're, you mentioned earlier, old school, we're both kind of old school guy, but you've got to be open to 2023 baseball. That's the game. That's what, they decide it's not our game anymore. It's the current players game. And I say that all the time. So I do have an open mind. And the last few years I've come to realize, Hey, this isn't my game anymore. Yeah. In my day, we wouldn't have done that, but it's not my day. History will judge each and every generation of players. It's not for us to judge. It's for us to bring that game to you. But being a catcher, for instance, my dad, he's 74 years old. I think you know my dad's opinion probably on taking a knee behind home plate and not taking a knee. <laughs> You're watching this game on a daily basis in real time. I understand the 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 thought process behind behind taking a knee, the framing. What do you think about it? So initially, I was absolutely against it. Right. Completely against Makes it. sense. And then I, you know, so now it's probably been in vogue, what, for five, six years mm-hmm. on a on a league-wide basis. And I'm understanding it a little bit more, talking to more and more people saying, well, why are you doing this? As opposed to me just making a judgment, why are you doing this? And the understanding is I, I was a big, I'm a big guy. I was big for my, as a catcher. Your dad was very big for a catcher. I think your dad was like 6'3" probably 250, 260. I'm 6'2". I was 6'45 when I, 245 when I played. So getting low, I was, I was very flexible. So I was able to get down low and give a target. Your dad was super flexible. I can still picture him, you know, with with his knees kind of 
kind of tilted in and given that really, really low target. I understand the part where it can really benefit a catcher over the course of 162 games, energy-wise. The part, the only, and the only real part that I have a problem with now is when he runs on third base. Right. It cannot get by you. Yeah. It cannot. It cannot. And if you if you drop anchor, is how I, how I described you know dropping to a knee, it limits your ability and your agility to go left and right. You might be able to go one way, which, you know, whichever knee you're not on, you could push that way. Like if, if my if my knees, my left knee's down, then I could probably go a little bit further left than I can right because I'm going to have to push off with that right leg to go that way. I see that, and I've seen way too many games um, lost by by a ball that should have been blocked. Because ha- going back to like that with that uh, – confidence that you would instill in your in your pitcher hey guy i got two strikes i want this slider bouncing on the dirt on the plate bounce i do, do not want to strike bounce it on the plate i'm gonna block it have confidence that i will block it so now it's two strikes and i need that slider down in the dirt and there's the winning run on third base there's a chance in my brain i go uh, i don't know if i want to risk it because i'm on a knee so maybe i don't throw the right pitch at the right time in the right situation. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. No, you, okay. You, right. So, so, so he, here's, and then here, here would be my rationality of going, okay, I don't mind it. Nobody on, nobody on base. Fine. You can sit in a chair with nobody on base. There's no, if it goes to yeah. the backstop, it doesn't matter, but it's, Correct. it's, Correct. if you're going to do it, Here's my layman take from a non-catcher. It's like, okay, you're a big league catcher. You like the one knee. Okay, great. As long as people aren't on base, and like you said, the most important, that runner on third, this ball cannot get by me. He can't score. If, if, you, want can't. Me to, if you want me to treat you as a big league, everyday starting catcher, well, then I'm going to trust the fact that when you're not supposed to be on your knee, I can trust you 100%. You will not be on your knee. Anything less than that is unacceptable. Right. Does that make and sense? That's kind, of, that's kind of where I am at. So I don't, I'm not totally against it. I, I like the fact, gosh, I wish I could have went on a knee and saved all that energy, you know, right. with, with right. nobody on, nobody out, you know, whatever. Uh, but I just have. And I and I still when I, I still try to talk to to all the catching guys uh, around the league when I have the chance, uh, Bobby Wilson, who is one of the best catching instructors in baseball, watching him uh, the last two years day in and day out with his guys, uh, he's really helped Jonah Heim behind the plate. Jonah is now one of the you know top framers. Um, Trevino, who's now in New York, won the Gold Glove last year, attributed it to Bobby Wilson. So I've had that conversation with him about that and he just said you know he's like his and i love this response he's like it's up to the catcher if you feel like you can be on the knee and still block that ball i'm gonna trust that you can do that but there are some guys who go you know what i'm cool on the knee i can throw well i can still maybe make the same time off of the knee throwing the ball to second base or third base but in that situation i want to go back to getting up off the knees so I can make sure and I have more confidence in blocking that ball. So he's kind of left it up to the individual catcher. Uh, and I know they they say they have the statistics and all that for percentages or runs stolen or uh, runs saved, pitches called, 
that you know that are marginal because of the framing part of that right uh, but i still go back to you know the the worst look in the world is a game ending because there's a pass ball or a wild pitch Optically, go, I, I, I would always have to go back to that old school of i i feel better i feel more like a cat like a like a cougar ready to attack when I'm off the ground and I'm ready to throw my body in front of any ball to save that run. Right. It's, it's for me, it's at second base. If, if I don't have the out, uh, on a stolen base at second base, I'm not going to Olay it and make the greatest catch tag in the history of the world with a runner on third. And that's an important run. I've got to do whatever I can. I'm a hockey goalie. Now the out at yes. second d- d- is not important anymore. Secondary. And, I need, and yeah. I need to block this ball. It's the same with a catcher. Some but catchers that's, say, a game, that's game awareness, right? So right. what we're talking about is game awareness. Right. And some catchers I, that say. I would venture to say a, a lot of guys, as you have, and I have watched during, you know, the last decade, not a lot of players have that mindset or even understand that part of it. There's a lot of lackadaisical type of things that, Again, you you were a highly professional player, and you knew game situation. You had game awareness, and you understood. Hey, this this run doesn't mean anything. First and third, if that's a tying run on third base, this guy going from first to second is zero, zero importance. Right. So whatever I have to do to make sure he does not score, whether it's coming up, if I throw you a short hop, come up and catch it on the fly, give the guy the base. Right. You know, those, those are just situational awareness of. of of a guy that understands what's going on in the game at that moment. So note to the players of today, do not have Dave Valley and Brett Boone in the same room and allow us to yell at the TV. That can't happen because we will say it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that cannot yes. happen in that situation. One more thing as a catcher, we'll move on. Uh, always interested in this. I had my relationship with the umpires. Uh, because playing at second base, and I've talked about it in detail on on the podcast, it's I go out for that that first game of the series, and whoever's at second, I'm hey, how you doing? You know, what are we going? I always had a relationship, was always talk because he's going to be behind the plate in two days, and I know that umpires are your friend. That's my that's my approach to umpires and our relationships through the years, and I got along pretty well with most of the umpires. You're living back there with them every day. Dave mm-hmm. Valley comes to the plate. You don't like a call. You do what I would do. You yell at him. Now, you're the third out. You're putting your gear on. Now you're right in his living room. Tell me what that's like right away. Because once I argue, I, you know, I drop my back. We have words. I go to the dugout. I get my glove. I go out to my position. I don't have to deal with him for like an hour. So he's going to get over it by then. You're going right yeah. back into the living room. He might have yeah, his you hand got on it you. easy. He might have his hand on your back. <laughs> Tell me, give yeah, me, just so, run them so through, think, run, the, run the audience through a scenario. Yeah. So just think about that, right? He just punches me out. And I can think of one Teddy Higuera. Uh, he, he called me out. The pitch was like at my ankles, right? Strike three. I pause, look at him. Knowing I've got, I'm going to be like within six inches of them in in about a minute, right, with my gear on. Yeah. So it it is. It's very tenuous, and it is a again, it's a relational issue that I've got to figure out. What do <laughs> I say? What can I say? You Sorry. know, there are some guys that that wouldn't <laughs> mind if you if you yelled at them, 
and then you like kind of let it go. Uh, there are other guys I would say, and I would look at them go, I better get that same pitch when I'm behind the plate, you know? So you can argue a couple of different ways, depending on how good that relationship is. Uh, you know, I think of guys like Derwood Merrill, Derwood would let, you know, you could argue back and forth with them. Ken Kaiser, same thing. Uh, but if you, if you cross the line, that's, that's when they back then, back then they could really stick it to you. Ken Kaiser, Detroit rookie rookies up at the plate. Uh, it was like a one and one count fastball down off the plate. It was probably a ball and he calls it a strike. And the rookie looks at him and goes, that's not a strike. And he, he look, he takes his mask off and goes, son, get back in the box. And I'm like, I'm listening to all this. Right. So I get down in my squad, getting ready to give my sign. I feel Kaiser's left arm pushing me off the plate. Off the plate. So I'm like now setting up my target about eight inches off the plate in the left-handed batter's box. Here comes the pitch. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go with it. Fastball off the plate. Ha! Strike three. He looks at the kid goes, how'd you like that one, son? And the kid looked at him like, you're crazy. Yeah, but that back was then back. They would, back then they would do it. They, it they was the good old boys. You, you, could, if you, you couldn't be fired. You couldn't be fired back nope. then. Believe me, I, I got the wrath of Kenny Kaiser when I was a rookie. I, I got it from him. And I, I just kind of looked he, at him. He like, was a character, man. I had one yeah. game with him in uh in Toronto, Randy Johnson's pitching. And I go out there, bottom of the first inning. He goes, Val, you got the easiest job in the world. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, he goes, he got Johnson on the mound. He goes, I could call his game. I said, then do it. He goes, okay. I get behind the plate. And he'd whisper in my ear, fastball, slider. I mean, Randy at that time threw a fastball or slider, right? He called it for three innings and had no hitter. And he goes, all right, kid, you take it from here. Right. He called every pitch. Yeah, You got to know, too, that if he's calling him, he's like, wow, Val's letting me call this game. I'm going to get anything close. Hell, yeah, you're going to get this. (laughs) You're going to get those pitches. I'll tell you, I found it when, when I was a kid coming up in that rookie treatment you're talking about. I, I found myself shaking my head talking to these guys like, what did my dad do to you? Why are you treating <laughs> why are you treating me this way? But yes, come to find out, yes. you got you got to you know, back then you had to earn your stripes. Just like as a rookie in yes. the clubhouse, you had to earn your stripes with the umpires too. Um Yeah, don't don't touch a remote control until you're you're arbitration eligible, right? That's right. Not that's for right. the music, not for the TV. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, your current career, 97 to 2013, uh, a lot of Mariner, 2009 MLB network, uh, 2022, you went to the Rangers this year. And it's really interesting what you're doing. You got 45 games with the Rangers and I think 40 or 45 games with the Seattle Mariners, both former teams of yours that you played for, uh, both really good teams. And I'm, and I wanted to get your take on the on the rangers after we discuss this but 
I think both are going to be fighting for the pen or for the uh, for that division. Texas currently top the division. Man, a lot of fun going on there. Big offense. Uh, it's fun watching those guys. And you got. I, I think you're going to need Degrom and and Seager to be healthy. But but it's kind of cool. Yeah. Bochi, Bochi comes over. Texas Rangers are making some noise, and they haven't been making some noise. It's been Houston at the top of that division. Mariners came on last year. Mariners are good again this year. They can really pitch, Val. But tell me what that's like being in the booth. You've been doing it for so long. It, it's probably not a big deal yeah. for you. But you got to do a Ranger game, and maybe in a couple days you got to switch, and you're going to be in the in the Mariner in the Mariner booth. Us at home sitting here as fans. I'm never a big uh proponent of the guy that really homers his team. Oh, way to go. We need to get, or is almost cheering for the I like it to kind of remain neutral. Yeah. If I can right. tell you have a slight, slight bias, you work for the ball club. I get it. But but give yes. me the game. Give me the game in a professional manner. Uh you've always done that. You know, I've I've seen you for years and years. But is it a little bit strange for you to go from that Mariner booth to the Ranger booth? So my broadcast career, you know, we talked earlier about being blessed to have played for 20 years, you know, in the minors, in the big leagues. Um, this is my 26th year as a broadcaster. Can't believe it, you know, how quickly time goes by. So I've, I've experienced a lot from, you know, doing the color for the Mariners early on, doing pre and post game. I've done radio shows, uh, post game radio shows for Seattle. Uh just been really fortunate to be able to still be in this game, right? So I'm in year 46 of professional baseball. So I've always taken the the, the stance that I want to talk about baseball. I'm, I'm not there to criticize a player. For instance, uh, if a relay play is done improperly and I've got, you know, uh, let's say with Texas right now, Marcus Simeon or Corey Seager, they're the star players. I don't need to trash either of those players, but I can call out, Hey, take a look at their alignment. You know, they did ended up doing a zigzag to try to get the ball at home, trying to cut the guy off from first base, some scoring that extra throw carried another 15 to 20 feet. When had they stayed in line, they probably would have had a much better chance to get them. So there's ways to do it, uh, to be able to call out the right way to do it. The professionalism, whether it's, you know, the hustle in certain situations, beating a ground ball out and not getting doubled up, having a run score. You know, a, the, those little things where it'd be really easy to go, hey, this guy was, you know, he was a dog. Uh, I try not to take that tact. I don't think I need to. Uh, these guys are big leaguers. As you mentioned earlier, it's really hard to be a big leaguer uh, in the day-to-day -day -day grind. But going from the Mariners to the Texas Rangers, with the Mariners that do a lot of pre- and post-game shows nowadays, but – uh I think the biggest thing is not to call the Rangers the Mariners and the Mariners the Rangers. So th those words are in your brain after you do a week of Texas Ranger games and then I fly up to Seattle and I'm doing Mariner games. Uh, I catch myself a couple of times going, the rate uh, Mariners, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's all good. It, it's, again, uh, to be able to be down here in Texas with the Rangers, a much improved team over last year. I, I started – doing games for them last year as Tom Grieve retired I kind of replacing Tom who had been there gosh almost 50 years so fortunate to have that opportunity but they went out and they've spent money over the last two years probably a six to seven hundred million dollars uh you know Corey Seager Marcus Simeon Jacob DeGrom Evaldi 
Healy, uh, much improved starting rotation, which they really needed. I think they're still working on some answers down in the bullpen. They've kind of been a little bit shaky down there in the early going, but much improved team. They've got some young players, uh, Josh Young, who's come up and is swinging the bat. He's got some power. Ezekiel Duran, who's filling in for Corey Seager at shortstop. It's just kind of a baseball player. You know, yeah, one of those kids getting in the box. And he just knows how to hit. He knows where the barrel of the bat is. I, I kind of liken him offensively to Gene Segura, who just knows how to right. hit. Right. You know, Segura is a guy that was throwing out 200 hits a year. Uh, but but Ezekiel, I think, is a, even a more well-rounded player. He can play some third. He can play some second. He came up as a shortstop. So it'll be interesting to see how they – use him going forward because he's been an impact offensively. Uh, so when Corey gets back to see how Boach is going to, you know, kind of put him into that lineup and help that team win the Mariners. Uh, they're struggling a little bit out of the gate right now, but again, another team that has just been so improved over the last few years, expectations are very high to me. Their bullpen has been their secret the last couple of years, but they, man, they've got some young arms who have come up most recently, Bryce Miller. Oh, amazing. I mean, it's pretty good. Pretty good. Three first three games. Yes. Yes. What's it? Oh, point four two ERA over this first three games. Uh, 19 innings. Spectacular arm. Yes. Incredible. So pitching and defense, you know, going back, pitching and defense wins championships. Uh, This is a team that that pitches and it's a team that can catch the baseball. Uh, Julio Rodriguez is a is a. Ken Griffey Jr. type could be, could be generational. I, I hate putting that label on anybody because you and I lived it, watched it, and it was so spectacular. You're thinking, yeah, other guys could do that, but it's hard to do. It's hard to be Ken Griffey Jr., but this kid has all the talent in the world um, and ha- and has the personality to go along with it in a way that very few do at his age. He just kind of gets it on every level gets it with the fans he gets it with the team he gets it with leadership um he has a chance really special player and the mariners have bet on him giving him i think what a 13 or 14 year deal so uh they're married for a long time i don't know how much you knew him before before this year uh, i got to play for him one year one of my favorite guys like lou lou's probably my favorite of all time boach is right there one of my favorite men i don't know if you knew him before or just getting to know him this year how much is you think Boach has brought to the to the Rangers. Yeah, I think bringing uh, Bruce Bochy in was, was a was a phenomenal move by Chris Young. Uh, he he played for Boach. He knew what he brought to the table, and he's brought this stability into into that clubhouse, much like Lou did when he came to the Seattle Mariners back in 1993. A veteran guy who had been successful, who had won championships, and brought in the respect. You know, immediately when he walks into the locker room. There's an air of respect from every single player in there, from veterans to rookies. So uh, I thought that was a fantastic move. Uh, them going out and strengthening their starting rotation certainly helped Boach uh, having a much more potent team. But impact on leadership, I, I think it means a lot. You know, uh, the, the direction of that clubhouse, you played for Boach. And everything I heard, I worked with Tim Flannery for many years at the uh, MLB Network. And, and Timmy would talk about how, Boach would tell the veterans, hey, this is your locker room. You got to take care of it. You decide what the rules are. I don't have to tell you what the this is yours. This is your area. 
Uh, and I always admired that, that he had the ability, because great leaders have an ability to delegate and they don't have to micromanage every single little thing. So the fact that he did that kind of gave me, gave me a glimpse of who he was going to be when he came here with the Texas Rangers. And he hasn't disappointed anybody. Yeah, Boach, great, awesome guy. 1995, uh, and this is something that Dave is is near and dear to your heart. Uh, you founded the Esperanza, uh, and it's for uh, <clears throat> it's for families of poverty in the Dominican Republic. I know this has been a huge part of your life for a lot of times. Uh, what you give off the field and, and what your passion is. Uh, tell everybody out there about Esperanza, what it entails. So 1985, I'm going to take you way back, Booney. Uh, 1985, I went down there after, <laughs> interestingly enough, your dad ran me over at home plate in April of 1985. Crushed my left quad. I was out for four and a half months. Went down to AAA for like three weeks right before the season ended. And I'm home in September, and my best friend calls me up and says, hey, Val, he goes, you know, you need to go play winter ball, man. You got to get ready for next spring. You've missed a whole year. So I said, you get me a job and I'll go. So he ended up getting me a job in the Dominican Republic. And I'm down there for about two weeks. I had just become a dad. Philip was four months old. So Vicky and I are staying in this hotel. And the bus to pick up the, the, the Americans was a little bit late. So I'm outside the ballpark. Phillips falls asleep in my arms. It's about 11 o'clock at night. The lights of the stadium start going off. And all of a sudden, a group of kids, 15 to 20 of them, started coming around us. All of them were shoeless. Most of them were shirtless. And they were not looking for an autograph, Booney. They, they walked right past us, went to the garbage cans, and started looking for food. And my wife, Vicky, who's born in Cuba, Spanish is her first language. I told her, I said, hey, baby, we need to do something here. So there was a woman who was cooking some fried chicken and sweet potatoes, a little outdoor you know, business. So I said, go to that lady and tell her to cook up whatever she has left over, and let's feed the kids. So Vicky goes over. She starts talking with the kids. They're laughing. I'm holding Philip as he's sleeping. And... You know, he, she's cooking for fried chicken and, and sweet potatoes. And uh, Vicky's just having a, a ball with these kids. So the bus comes and we get on the bus and the kids are waving. And, you know, we looked at each other and was like, wasn't that awesome? Like we saw this need and we were able to meet that need immediately. And Vicky said, yeah, it was. She goes, but the reality is like when they wake up in the morning, wherever they're sleeping tonight, they're going to be hungry again. So on the bus ride back to Santo Domingo, uh, we made a commitment that night in 1985 that if we ever had the chance to do something, we would come back and do it. So fast forward, 1991, I signed my first multi-year deal with Seattle. And uh, that winter, we go to the Dominican, not to play baseball. By then, I had my daughter, Natalia. So we go down there for a month and a half. And all we did was look, go around the country to try to figure out, okay, God, what do you want us to do? I mean, the needs were so overwhelming. and uh, I came across this book that I had been reading and it was called Give Them Credit. And it's about this thing called microfinance where you provide a small loan to the poor to help them start a business. So you're basically teaching them to fish. And I was like, you know what? That's like my uncle giving me the lawnmower and now I go out and I mow the lawn. In fact, it's like that woman that very first night where we bought the chicken from, somebody somewhere gave her the initial money to start and buy her, her stock so that she could then fry it up and sell it on the street. So fast forward, 1995, we started Esperanza International with uh, a, 15, a group of 15 women. And uh, here we are 28 years later, we're still operating. We now have 10 offices throughout the island. We have over 100 full-time staff. 
Uh, and I know this, th these numbers kind of blow me away whenever I share them with people because uh, it's really humbling to, to think that God has used me this way. But by the end of this year or early next year, we'll have loaned over $100 million to the poor in increments of anywhere from $100 to $5,000. Uh, during our process of, of providing the small loans to individuals, we, we move to schools. And so we, what we do is we provide, uh, we find people who are, have a small school, like a home school, and maybe there's 20 students in it. We come alongside them, help them build maybe more classrooms so they could have more students, which would create more teachers. We now have 349 schools with over 50,000 students. And then we went from schools to water. So we, we started building water purification systems where we, they provide five to 8,000 gallons per day. We have about 100 of those that we partner with the local church. And the thing I love about the water part is if you give people clean drinking water in the developing world, it eliminates 85% of all healthcare issues that they have to deal with. So it's a really powerful tool for, for health. Uh, and the way we do that is we partner with the church. We build out the water purification system, teach them how to run it, which creates jobs. And then the church sells the water for half the price of what the local economy, like a and within three to four years, the loan is repaid and we go do another one. So we now have a hundred of those. So just the impact of going in, uh, being able to provide opportunity for people. You know, I, I mentioned earlier in, in the podcast that uh, I grew up with eight kids, single mom. We help a lot of single mothers, a lot of single grandmothers. So there, there's an affinity for me to be able to come alongside people who, who just need a hand, who need an opportunity uh, and not a handout. So uh, Esperanza has become kind of the, the passion of my life uh, and will continue until, until the day that I die. Uh, but it is something that my, my family and I have uh, really rallied against or rallied for, uh, for the help of the poor throughout the world. David, I appreciate you coming on today, man. That was a lot of fun catching up. Uh, love pleasure, getting, bro. Uh, always, always love to be with you. Yeah, always love catching up with, with the volcano. It's a lot of fun. Hopefully, I'll see you, <laughs> I'll see you this summer, uh, either in Seattle. Yes, we'll somewhere both be along together at the All-Star Game. Yeah, perfect. We'll That'll go. be great. Yeah. We'll be there. That'll man. be great. But I appreciate you coming on. Great career. Great current career. Uh, all great you do. Mention the Esperanza. And I appreciate you. Great guy, David Valley. For all you out there listening to the Boone Podcast, subscribe. Drop me a line. Tell us how we're doing. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.